Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. The health of our children is something that is understandably foremost in what we want. It's excruciating to see our children in pain or just not themselves. Very often we desperately start consulting Dr. Google and suddenly a whole host of theories, often with no evidence base, are racing around our heads. Sometimes it's fine, but sometimes these misconceptions will cause either undue worry or undue discomfort when your child actually needs to see a doctor. As a hospital-based paediatrician who also works in general practice, my guest today, Dr. Shruti Jawahar Ganatra, is uniquely placed to see which misconceptions prevail and is here to put the record straight. Shruti, thank you so much for joining me today. I know that you're especially busy uh, working in the hospital at the moment, um, but it's so great to have a paediatrician on the show and just to get some clarification about what these common misconceptions are. No problem at all, Marina. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, so, Shruti, the first one I want to talk about, which I think is the, the misconception that annoys me the most, is this idea that uh, your child gets cold and that's what's given them a cold. The amount of informed, intelligent friends I have who say, oh, my child went out in the snow and now she, she caught a cold from, from being so cold. And that's not true, is it? Absolutely not. It's it's really, really frustrating when people come in saying that my child's got a cold and it's gone to their chest. They were playing outside in the cold with wet hair and now they're really unwell. That's not true. That's not going to be the cause of it. And actually, what frustrates me even more is the idea around antibiotics and colds. I think as doctors, It's our duty to make sure that any child's safety is absolutely paramount. It's our responsibility. It's what we've been taught for years on end. And I think people sometimes don't understand how important self-care is. Um, Antibiotics aren't necessarily the solution to every single cold that happens. And generally speaking it's really important to to get them reviewed and checked out by a doctor who's trained in this because we're always taught first do no harm and every drug has potential side effects and we're only going to prescribe medications if they're absolutely necessary and needed for that condition. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So back to the whole cold thing. That's a virus, isn't it? A virus causes a cold, not not being a bit chilly. No, exactly. So it's a viral illness. It's a, a bug, and there are lots of different types of bugs, bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites. Um, most colds are caused by simple viral infections. And with that, you can get a sore throat, a runny nose, temperatures, cough. Um, and it's difficult to differentiate between... Um, presentations as a layperson as to what is caused by a bacteria and what is caused by a virus. And that's why the common cold is labelled as the common cold because it's usually caused by a virus that needs simple time, fluids, sometimes medications such as paracetamol or ibuprofen to help temperatures settle. Um, but generally, the body will fight it off itself. And temperatures are actually a sign that the body is doing just what it should and don't always even need to be treated if your child is really comfortable with it. Um, so often actually around temperatures there are lots of misconceptions that do they need to be treated? Should they be treated with medication? Should they be left alone? And actually the really simple answer is if your child is comfortable and running around with a temperature of 39 degrees it's fine, they don't need to be treated. That is their body doing its job, its immune system fighting the infection. When does a temperature get dangerous? When, when do parents, should they start worrying about a temperature? And what are the risks of a child having an excessively high temperature or a temperature that goes on for too long? That's a really good question. And particularly in the current climate, I think what we're seeing, uh, usually with any common cold or virus, for the first two or three days, you'll have temperatures and then you'll start to see after the first two to three days that temperature trending down. It won't be as high, it won't be as frequent. If, however, that's not what's happening and that temperature is rising, it's persisting and it's been there for four to five days, that is the point that it's really important to get medical advice and get your child seen to. And that's actually just one of the reasons. Of course, if your child is having breathing difficulties, breathing much faster, looking really unwell, looking pale or mottled. Or I think one of the things that we really underplay is parental instinct. As a parent, you know your child the best. And actually, it's something that we're taught as pediatricians. If a parent's worried about their child, that is the most important red flag. That is something that needs to be taken so seriously because actually that speaks volumes. And if you're worried, regardless of how high or how long that temperature's been going on for, that is the point to seek specialist advice. And what about the actual figure of the temperature? So we know that the normal temperature is sort of, it's 36.8 or something, isn't it? About 37 degrees. I 
I don't know if this is wrong, but I never take any notice of it unless it's sort of beyond 39. I just think, well, you know, if they're fine, then they're fine. What is that right? Or is there a, a you know, should we be reporting sort of any temperature or and, and what is very, very, very high temperature? And what are the dangers associated with that? So that is such a good question. And actually, it depends partly on the age of the child. So in a child under the age of three months, a temperature over 38 degrees is something that is very serious and needs to be attended to immediately. And that is why when you look on the box for Calpol or ibuprofen, it will always say seek medical advice for that very reason. Babies that are very young aren't able to really show us what's happening, where or why this temperature is happening, and therefore they do end up needing lots of tests to work out what's going on because they can become unwell very quickly. So temperature under the age of three months is something that needs to be seen in hospital. Over that age, or at least over the age of six months, strictly speaking, a temperature is over 38 degrees. And as to what temperature is a dangerous temperature, actually, even with simple colds, with simple viral infections, you can have temperatures above 40 degrees. And that can be really alarming for parents, understandably. Having said that, in bacterial infections that are really dangerous, you can have temperatures hovering along at 38.5 degrees. So what I'm trying to say is actually the number isn't telling at all as to how serious the condition is or how simple this can simply this can be managed the number is not relevant and and is there is there a danger what is the danger of the temperature getting too high like if a child had a temperature of over 40 degrees let's say 41 degrees would you think right we need to get this temperature down is there a state where they you think right we need to get this this down is there a danger of having too high a temperature no actually the number itself shouldn't be concerning at all what's most important is the child in front of you so it's incredible. I think as adults, my threshold, certainly, if I have a temperature of 39 degrees, I feel rotten and I can't do anything. But children are incredible and so resilient. They will be running around playing, even with temperatures of 40. And if that's the case, you don't need to worry and you don't need to treat it. Having said that, if they have a temperature of 38.2 and are looking really lethargic and listless, that is the point at which you should treat it and seek further help. So honestly speaking, the number is of no relevance whatsoever. Parents often worry about the number if their child has had febrile seizures or a convulsion associated with a temperature. And there's been lots of work done on this to look to see whether or not there's a particular number that's important And what they found actually is it's the rise and fall in temperature that potentially causes the body's response to have this kind of convulsion. And even in those scenarios, treating it with Calpol or ibuprofen won't necessarily prevent a febrile convulsion from happening. So actually, it shows once again that there is no dangerous number if, of course, you've been having temperatures for many days that aren't showing any signs of letting off, then it's important to get checked out. But that's more looking at the bigger picture. And that is why it's so important that if you're not sure, 
seek specialist advice. That's what we're there for. And and I remember, um, and this might have been sort of from watching films in the 80s, this idea that if, if someone's got high temperature, you need to kind of get cold flannels and put them on their heads to get the temperature down. Is there any evidence that this is beneficial in any way or is this just something from uh, films? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I think that the the evidence is uh, the the evidence is not very clear. To be fair, what's important is keeping the child cool, stripping them down, fanning. There's no evidence to suggest that that helps. Cold flannels, no real evidence to suggest that that helps. So that is why we usually would recommend looking at the bigger picture and seeing how they are in themselves. And so obviously when you talk about treatment for um, temperatures, it's giving ibuprofen and paracetamol, which is proven to, to reduce the temperatures. But if, as you said, you know, you've got a child who's maybe got quite a high temperature, 39, but they're really happy, in that case, would you also not give paracetamol and, and ibuprofen? Absolutely, I wouldn't. If they're really happy, despite having a temperature, I would be happy to let it's, the body do its job and take its course. And so back to the whole idea that colds can give you colds, does that mean that it's absolutely fine for us to let our children get cold? I mean, I'm talking as a mother who has children that wear shorts all year round. It's snowing right now. They go out bare feet in the garden. And sometimes if we have big puddles in the garden, they will strip off and run around. Is that all okay? Or should I be feeling really guilty about that? I don't think you should be feeling guilty at all. I think it, it feels wrong, doesn't it, to, to let them go out in the cold when it's in, in minimal clothing. And I get so many comments, people going, oh, they'll catch their cold. And we've established that they're not going to catch their cold. But, you know, they'll, if they get really cold, presumably they'll go, Mummy, I'm cold. Absolutely. And I think if they're running around and they're expending lots of energy and they're going to work up a heat regardless, there's no evidence to suggest that they need to be wrapped up warm. And this I'm talking about in older kids. In younger children, in, in babies, it's really important to, to dress them really warmly in weathers such as now when it's a snowy day and it's cold. And that's because they don't have the ability to regulate their temperature as we do as we grow older. And it's really important to make sure that their body temperature is controlled by keeping them wrapped up. Older children who have a lot more tub to protect them, actually their body is able to regulate that themselves. And, and also, I suppose, you know, one of the things we forget with babies is that we generate a lot of heat by simply being mobile and moving around, you know. So when my children go outside, you know, they're 9 and 11 now, they don't wear that much, but they're racing around and so they're keeping warm. Whereas a baby, they're basically stationary and so they don't generate warmth in the same way, do they? Absolutely. And don't get me wrong, I don't advocate children running outside in swimming costumes when it's snowing, but I don't think there's actually any evidence to suggest that that's going to cause a cold. Well, I mean, I've started my New Year's resolution this year was to try and have a cold shower after my warm shower, mainly because it makes me feel amazing. Like genuinely, it wakes me up, it invigorates me and I, I love the feeling. But I've had so many people who said, oh, it's meant to be great for your immune system. Is this another old wives tale? No, actually, it's not an old wives tale. There is some really good evidence to suggest that having a cold shower really boosts your immune system and your body's ability to fight infections. So fantastic that you can tolerate it I've tried and I've not managed so good on you so you mentioned febrile seizures um this is obviously a, a sort of fit a bit looks a bit like a sort of epileptic fit um which is caused by a very high temperature and um a lot of parents obviously get very worried about this and 
interpret it as epilepsy. Um, and, and so if your child has had a febrile seizure and it's a seizure that is caused by a high temperature, is that anything to do with epilepsy? Are they more at risk of having epilepsy or what is it? It's a really, really good question. I think seeing a child have a seizure is probably the most frightening experience uh, a parent can go through. It's horrific and understandably lots of questions will come along with that experience. Actually, febrile seizures are extremely common and if a child has had one once, they're likely to have one again. They tend to grow out of them, which is really reassuring, um, but they are not epilepsy. Epilepsy is completely different because epilepsy is a condition whereby you have seizures without any association with a temperature. And it is true that there is a very slight increased risk of developing epilepsy if you have febrile seizures. That risk is so minimal, it's not even noticeable. The numbers are pretty much on par. And therefore, it's really important to differentiate this because febrile seizures are something that we see all the time in children. And that does not mean that they have epilepsy. And so if your child, if, if your child's having a febrile seizure, that's, you would know that they've, they've got a high temperature and that would be, is, is it quite difficult to be mistaken for an epileptic seizure? So as a medical professional, it's something that we would diagnose once we've put all the information together. So getting an idea of the story behind what's caused the temperature and the build-up and looking at the actual type of seizure that they have, how long it lasts for, all of that is really important information. Looking at how they recover and how long it takes them to recover and what their neurological examination is afterwards, whether they've completely returned back to their baseline. Putting all of that information together, it's a really easy differential for someone who's trained to do that. I wouldn't expect um, any parent to be able to differentiate that themselves. And that's why I, I, again, would advocate attending and seeking medical advice in this sort of situation. Back to sort of colds. Babies are quite sort of wheezy and children can sometimes be a bit wheezy. Is this always something that means your child's got asthma, which is obviously something that's relatively common and can be quite scary for parents. Absolutely. So I see wheeze in my emergency department all the time. Under the age of six years old, I think we one in three children will have wheeze in their in their childhood. And as you can imagine, that's a lot of children. And parents automatically will worry, again, understandably, that this means asthma because wheeze is associated with asthma. But actually, uh, as common as asthma is, having wheeze under the age of six does not mean your child has asthma. Absolutely not. Um, often what we see is actually something called viral-induced wheeze in younger children. And that is what it says on the tin. It's a virus that causes a wheeze. So often with a simple cold, some children will be more prone to becoming wheezy. And as their cold settles and as their body fights off that cold, so will the wheeze. It's really important if they're working hard with their breathing or they're struggling to breathe, that again, they seek appropriate medical advice. But having that wheeze does not mean that your child has a label of asthma. That's that's very reassuring. <laughs> um, I want to talk a bit about burns um, because I think, you know, 
Invariably, as a parent, you will um, be treating some kind of burn. And if you look online, there are all sorts of um, theories around sort of household products that can treat burns. Toothpaste, I've heard, yogurt, cold water, cling film. What what works and what doesn't work? And are any of these actually making potentially burns worse? Really, really good question, Marina. So the best thing to do with any type of burn is cold water. That is the best first aid to do. And as tempting as it is to listen to lots of old wives' tales or very helpful friends or family who suggest Colgate on the burn or butter on a burn. I've heard all sorts. That is, none of those things are actually going to help. And as you say, some of them can make burns much worse. Um, Getting rid of any clothing that's around the area and literally keeping whatever is affected under running cold water for at least 20 minutes is the best thing that you can do for a burn. And that is absolutely key. And why is that? Because it's cooling the skin down. It's a really quick way of cooling the skin down, is it? Absolutely. That is the best way to cool the skin down quickly and to prevent further blistering or damage to the skin itself. How about, um, there's a lot around sort of tummy problems um, and um, the idea that, um, that you know, your, your child is in pain, you know, I've got a tummy problem. And often it's sort of, not necessarily a tummy problem, it's anxiety. Um, but a lot of times it, it, it's constipation and you get children who are in a lot of pain and they're told it's sort of constipation. You get parents thinking, well, can it really be that? How painful is constipation in children? And, you know, how, how do we sort of look into, how do we treat, um, you know, tummy aches in children? Really interesting, actually, because I can completely understand. I see so many children who come into our emergency department with excruciating tummy pain, rolling around, crying in agony. And actually, once you've unpicked what's going on, more often than not, constipation is one of the most commonest things that we see causing this. And I think if you're told that, it's sometimes hard to understand how having hard poo can cause such agony in your child. And actually, when you look at what causes that pain, it starts to make more sense. So the whole, part, the whole point of having a digestive system is to break down food and get rid of any excrement that's not needed. The body absorbs water to soften that poo to make it easier to pass. And I think there are lots of reasons why we can become constipated, not drinking enough water, not eating enough fruit and veg, not being very mobile. And particularly, uh, I think the way things are going now, in the, when the weather is cold, and when we're in the middle of a pandemic, people have just become very, very less active. And children are becoming more constipated as a result. What happens is the, the poo can sit in the rectum, which is the storage sac for where the poo sits before it is excreted. And that can become absolutely rock solid hard. And when it's really rock hard, you you can get bits of water passing around that rock that comes out as soiling in the underwear. And people think, well, actually my child's got diarrhea. Um, You know, I've seen it in their underwear. They don't have constipation. How can this pain be caused by that? What then happens is when those rocks of poo try to get pushed out, 
It is literally like being in labour. The gut contracts, really pushing to try and get that out. And that can be agonising and that can cause lots of tears and understandably lots of pain. And there's so much that can be done to help in those sorts of situations. Um, even just getting a, into a good routine in terms of how you even sit on the toilet. It's amazing how these things can help. It's all about right angles. So stools are really helpful. Getting your child to put their feet on a stool whilst they're sitting on the toilet and everything being at right angles. So the foot to the leg, the knees at right angles and the hips at right angles. And that really helps get the position correct. Then uh, it's about the treatment. And some of the treatment that we start, people get quite worried about because... As I've said before, every medication can have potential side effects. The most common medication that we use in constipation is Movicol. And all this does is help the poo to absorb water. It's called an osmotic laxative and it does just that. It gets the water in the right place and it helps soften up the poo. That used um, in accordance to the consistency of the stool uh, and it will be explained clearly as to how this should be titrated according to what the poo looks like, can actually work wonders. The difficulty is it can often be needed for as long as your child has been constipated, and sometimes that can be for many, many months. And again, that can be difficult to understand. But it's all about retraining the gut and that muscle. Well, and I guess, you know, with children, we don't talk enough about poo with them. And, you know, if I remember being constipated actually after I had my children, and it is, it is so painful. But you're aware of when you're getting constipated, so you do something about it. Whereas children aren't that aware. So usually by the time parents pick it up, it's actually quite severe. So, of course, it's going to be that painful. But, you know, like you said, it's as painful as giving birth, which is very, very painful indeed. So I guess parents would be forgiven for thinking this is a terrible, terrible um, prognosis when actually it is something as simple potentially as, as constipation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about tonsillitis and this idea, you know, getting sort of um, sore throats I know is quite common. And certainly when I was young, if um, you got, if you were prone to sore throats, you'd get your tonsils removed. Is this still the right treatment for um, recurring throat infections? Because I don't actually hear about it happening quite as much anymore. So... You're right, and that's because it doesn't happen as much now. And I often, sore throats can be just caused by colds. It, each child can have up to 10 viral infections in a year. And sometimes these viral infections can last up to two weeks at a time. That's a hell of a lot of time being unwell with a sore throat, a cold or cough, or whatever the symptoms may be. If... It really depends on the impact of these sore throats or infections. If it means that the child is having lots of time off school and it's really impacting their ability and their day-to-day -day activities, then it's something that really needs to be thought about carefully. But actually, having your tonsils removed is not without risk. And I think that's the biggest thing about medicine. It is an art. It's not a science. It's something that brings everything together because you have to think about the pros and cons to everything you do. And putting a child under general anaesthetic um, for a procedure that actually comes with its own risks, uh, significant bleeding being the, the most important, uh, really needs to be thought about carefully. And so 
going to the doctor with a request to have tonsils removed is something that you know happens quite often and and actually it's something that's really important to sit and talk through with your doctor to look at the situation from afar to decide whether or not that is the appropriate step and most often it's really not yeah it's interesting I think you know I suppose if you've had your tonsils removed you don't think about you know if the if the procedure's been very straightforward you don't necessarily think about the risks if you haven't experienced bleeding it's that you were lucky rather than that, that that's not a risk um and so I guess and then after the tonsils have been removed you can still presumably have viral infections in that area it's not suddenly you're going to get better absolutely you can get inflammation in the surrounding anatomical structures and whether you label it as a pharyngitis or a laryngitis rather than a tonsillitis you'll experience the same kind of symptoms so it's something that's really really important to think about when it comes to tummy bugs um i'm not even quite sure what is defined by a tummy bug one of these sort of wonderful (laughs) terms that us parents use the whole time but if your child has um a bit of an upset tummy they've got diarrhea maybe they've been vomiting it's a sort of sick bug which is quite common with with sort of little children are there any foods that help or don't help i mean i remember being told you know if your child's got a runny tummy eggs and bananas are a good thing to kind of um prevent that that sort of runny that that diarrhea um but what what should they be eating uh, ideally so that's again a really really important question because actually with a gastroenteritis or otherwise known as a tummy bug you often find that children lose weight when they're unwell and that's really horrible to see and really quite worrying so you always want to try and push to see encourage what they can eat but actually during the acute phase of that illness the most important thing is to make sure that they're well hydrated and how that hydration happens honestly doesn't really matter um we always historically used to say try and avoid milk when a child has gastroenteritis and and that's because sometimes it can make symptoms worse but having said that if your child is only drinking milk despite having copious amounts of diarrhea actually their body is still going to be absorbing the fluid from that intake and if they're having it and they're tolerating it and they're not vomiting it up that's absolutely fine to give The uh, reason that you end up seeing lots of diarrhea with dairy is because during a tummy bug, the gut's natural flora is completely wiped out and it can take two to three weeks for that flora to regenerate and to regrow. And that is what digests dairy. And therefore, because it's completely wiped out, you end up having lots of diarrhea with milk that goes on for days and days and days as part of this tummy bug that's okay as long as they're managing to get enough in and the best way to assess how well hydrated a child is is to see how well they're peeing if their wet nappies are at least half of what they would do normally that's a really reassuring sign Mm -hmm. and is there anything they really shouldn't be having if they've had a, a, a tummy bug I would avoid any sort of complex foods is what I would class it as. So anything with lots of spice or flavour, keep it really simple. Stick to sort of dry crackers, toast initially. If when their appetite starts to open up, they're asking for specific foods, there's no harm in giving it to them, but just go slow. Mm -hmm. The whole chicken soup theory, is there anything with that other than it's just a good way to hydrate and a nice source of protein? Uh, Absolutely. It's just another form of fluid. And if it works, fantastic. Uh, If it's plain water, if it's diorolite, 
any type of fluid realistically is good. And what about sort of acidic stuff? like sort of orange juice um is that if they haven't had they have they haven't eaten very much is sort of a glass of orange juice going to irritate their their tummy a bit more so anything acidic if they haven't if they've got an empty stomach might cause a little bit more irritation every child is different in terms of what they can and can't tolerate so if orange juice is something that they drink all the time and actually they can tolerate it great if that's what they're asking for and that's what they can manage I wouldn't hold any type of fluid back in this situation. And what about you? I mean, you mentioned obviously their gut flora being uh, wiped out. Should they be having kind of live yogurts? Um, you know, um, what do they call them? Those sort of kefir, that kind probiotics. of yeah, probiotics. Is that helpful in that situation? So there's been again lots of studies around this, and actually the jury is out. There's no real solid evidence to suggest that having probiotics is helpful. Uh, anecdotally lots of people will take them and find that they're really helpful but actually the evidence isn't strong enough to suggest advocating that as yet and that's the thing with medicine actually there are lots of trials and there's lots of studies that are going on constantly but often the numbers are really small to extrapolate so often what we find as clinicians is there are lots of studies around one topic all of which conflict each other, the conclusions of which are very conflicting. And, and therefore, it's really important to look at these with a really fine magnifying glass and to look into the details of them to see how reliable they are and how well that detail can be extrapolated into the population that we see. And, and presumably, you know, as you alluded to, we're all different, you know, and some things work really well for some people and some things don't. And I suppose it's also about sort of knowing your child and understanding what works for them. Um, and I mean, presumably then when they've had a tummy bug, just getting back to a sort of healthy routine, you know, we know it's healthy, isn't it? Drinking, you know, eating breakfast, lunch and dinner, um, trying to have a good, healthy, rounded diet with plenty of fibre um, and plenty of sleep and as little stress as possible. That All of those things are going to have a positive impact on, on the gut and your overall health. Absolutely. Having a good night's sleep, eating well, all of these things are irreplaceable and actually getting back to normality is absolutely key. And it's it's really interesting, you know, we, we've spoken about everyone being individual. Uh, often I get asked for children with eczema, what's the best cream that I can use? Uh, what's the best moisturiser that I can use? And that is the thing. The best is different for each individual because everyone's skin types are different. It's It's impossible to say that one cream is different. So I will always suggest a handful of different creams and say, try this on your child's skin and see what suits them the best because actually until you've tried that you won't know because everyone is different absolutely I was having a conversation with my sister who's also a doctor about some vitamin pills and she said oh but did it you know another friend said oh oh do these really make you feel great and I said do you know what the one thing that consistently makes me feel great is sleep my eczema is better I'm in a better mood I've got more energy I feel I look better and it is for me it's it's it is sleep and actually with all these creams and sort of miracle cures that are bandied around nowadays people sort of forget about the simple things that we can do that will look after our, our health in both in the short and the long term absolutely and not getting enough sleep uh, I think for children who struggle with sleep it can be an absolute nightmare for for everyone involved um, and routine 
is so important. There are lots of sort of tips and tricks that you can do to try and help in those scenarios. But again, it's about tailoring it to your individual circumstances and seeing what can help. And there is so much advice out there. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. Um, And that's why it's important to get advice from those that are qualified in the field to know exactly what they're talking about. And when, you know, I I love that advice about sort of eczema creams because I've been told so many times, oh, you must use this and this is the only thing that works. And just, I'm like, it just doesn't. Um, How long should you try something? Um, That that really frustrates me. Um, how 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 long should you try something for before you sort of think actually this isn't going to work this isn't working so again so such a good question and I think it really depends on what that something is so for example if it's a cream I would give it a try for at least a week uh, without that you, you need that routine you need that consistency to give it a proper trial period um, and you know if we're talking about changing formulas for example it's It's that really difficult period in the newborn period where you're completely lost as to what to do. Is it the formula? Uh, You're already sleep deprived. Things are as stressful as they possibly can be. And you want to do your absolute best to provide the right nutrition and nourishment. Cow's milk protein allergy is an example of when formulas get changed time and time and time again and in that situation you need to give it at least six weeks to see whether or not this is helping or hindering the situation so I think it depends on what the change or the circumstance is as to how long you need to try it for Um, but trialing something for a day or two I can guarantee is never going to be long enough to give it a real chance. And, you know, you talk about cosmic poetry analogy, which is something that is talked about a lot. I hear on the bump class, you know, um, I've got a cosmic protein allergy should does that mean my child shouldn't be you know eating cow's milk but actually we know that cow's milk is a good source of calcium which is really really important how common is cow's milk protein allergy really do you think it's a bit overdiagnosed or maybe even over self-diagnosed um and i mean how seriously should you think about before you change to dairy or lactose-free alternatives I, I think absolutely it's over, di- over self-diagnosed. And I think it's actually really difficult um, because it's not a condition where you can do a simple test to see, yes or no, my child has calcium protein allergy. It's a spectrum with a constellation of different symptoms that individually, those symptoms may very well be normal. Um, an example is reflux. So reflux can be a symptom for calcium protein allergy. Uh, And on its own, it can also be a very normal thing that every baby has. So how can you tell whether or not this is part of calcium protein allergy or it's just the symptom on its own? And again, it's about putting everything together. It's about putting the history really together carefully with the examination and all the other bits of information that we get. Looking at growth, for example, is really important in children and seeing whether that's been impacted. Seeing if there are other symptoms that fit into that spectrum, such as really severe eczema, blood in the stools, and then deciding where in that spectrum the symptoms lie. If we're at the severe end of the spectrum and a baby has really bad reflux, isn't able to tolerate milk without crying, has really, really bad eczema, has blood in their stools and is not thriving and is falling off centiles, 
that is something that absolutely needs what is called a trial of treatment. And I think that phrase, understandably, is quite unsettling or unnerving for people to hear because trial just makes it feel like it's a trial. But what we mean by that is we want to see whether or not making a change to the milk makes a difference. And that is, in fact, how we diagnose cow's milk protein allergy, by doing a trial off cow's milk protein. And that, again, takes time to take effect. So trying a different milk for a week is not long enough to make that diagnosis. And that can be really, really tough. That can be really difficult. And and what, you know, presumably this is something that should, needs to be made, you know, with a doctor there, with a doctor's advice, rather than thinking, oh, my child feels a bit... Um, off and there's a bit of eczema and let's just try an alternative. I mean, presumably that's a little bit dangerous, is it? Absolutely, because as, as we've just said, the nourishment, the vitamins and nutrients in formula milk is really carefully constructed. Changing those formulas without the advice of a healthcare professional depending on what you're changing to, uh, can be dangerous. And so it depends. It really depends. But if it's cow's milk protein that you're worried about, uh, if it's that kind of allergy that you're concerned about, it's really important to seek advice from a doctor. Uh, Shruti, it's been so great to talk to you. I wish I'd had you on tap uh, as my children were sort of little. Um, But actually, um, you are part of a new... um, App. Well, it's an, as a service connecting parents with paediatricians online and giving sort of remote consultations, which is sort of price, uh, private healthcare, but potentially on a slightly more economical level and also presumably easier to access paediatricians. Because I think a lot of parents worry that, you know, even to get a, you know, an appointment with your GP sometimes does take quite a long time and you just want reassurance. Tell me a little bit about Juno and, and how that works. Juno is something that I'm so excited about, Marina. It is actually going to revolutionise the way we access specialist healthcare. It's, as you say, a really simple, easily accessible app. And I think one of the things that frustrates me most with healthcare is the very archaic technology systems that we use, whether that's in hospital or in the primary care setting. If we can do our shopping online, if we can do our banking online, then why can't we get specialist healthcare advice from experts who are trained in it on a similar platform in a similar manner. Juno does just that. It enables parents to get specialist paediatric advice from highly trained paediatricians at their fingertips. It's an app that enables you to simply send a message, whether it's a text message about a concern that you have or a photo of a rash for example and get instantaneous advice it's actually been described by some users as having a pediatrician in your pocket and i think that really hits the nail on the head because that's exactly what it is it enables us to reassure where it's appropriate because actually as we've alluded to earlier A lot of consultations in A&E and in general practice aren't necessarily needed. A lot of the time what is needed is simple reassurance and that can be done really easily through this app. Sometimes it's self-care advice, which creams to use, how best to manage this temperature and 
it's really important that we empower parents to have the knowledge uh, and skills to be able to do this confidently themselves where it's appropriate. And at the same time, if it is the GP or A&E that you need to be signposted to, then Juno does that. And for that reason, I think it's going to really help reduce the number of unnecessary visits to GPs and to A&E, which I think in our current climate is going to be so important because I I think the NHS is incredible, but at the moment it is so overburdened and so overstretched. And if there's any way that we can help take the pressure off, then I think that is a real service. Well, I think it's a brilliant resource. Um, what is the? How do people find Juno? What do you say? It's J U N O. J U N O. Take a look at www.hellojuno.co.uk, and. You can also download it at the App Store. Perfect. Well, I'm going to be downloading that, that's for sure. Very, very reassuring. Um, Thank you, Shruti. It's been so lovely chatting to you. You have a really great way of making things simple and reassuring. So I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. That's really kind, Marina. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you all for downloading this episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review us wherever you found this podcast. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Shruti and me, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.